TT, there are two places we both say we don't want to mess around with. That's too deep in the ocean. That's right. And too far out into space. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's out there and we don't know what's down there. (laughs) Okay. There you have it. (laughs) (laughs) The people are like, oh, I would want to live in the ocean at the bottom. I'm like, we don't know anything about what's going on. Y'all are laughing at SpongeBob, but a pineapple under the sea? No, thanks. Okay. (laughs) You don't know what's down there. No one does. We don't know what's in space, but people are still trying to go there. Right. Just this Monday that just passed, NASA was supposed to launch their Artemis moon rocket, but the launch was scrubbed, so it was canceled due to technical difficulties because of a fuel leak and some other things like a temperature issue with the engine. When will we learn? (laughs) The sea (laughs) and space. We need to cool it down. When will we learn? I'm TT. And I'm Zakia. And from Spotify, this is Dope Labs. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to Dope Labs, a weekly podcast that mixes hardcore science, pop culture, and a healthy dose of friendship. This week, we're talking all about commercial space flights. Before we even get into this too deep, uh huh, I gotta know where everybody's landing. <laughs> if you could go to space, and I mean first class to space, not in the cargo area. If you could go first class to space, would you go? TT, would you go? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still very terrified of space. You know me. I've mm-hmm. said this in a few episodes. Mm-hmm. Like, the thought of space scares me, honey. Like, it scares me. But... You know, the scientist in me is very curious what it's like, if it'll be cool, you know. So I'm kind of on the fence. I'm going to say yes, because I feel like I have to say yes. Oh, y'all bullying my friend into being a space yes, explorer. Yes, I know y'all going to bully me. Y'all are always bullying me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now it's time for y'all to tell us, would you go to space, yes or no? If you take a look in the app right now, you'll see the poll at the bottom Let us know. Would you go to space? Yes or no. And also jump in our DMs or respond to our story on Instagram because we really do want to hear. I want to know why you're going or why you're not going. You didn't say, are you going? Oh, I'm in there like swimwear, terrified. I'm going scared. (laughs) Okay. I'm going scared straight to space. Everybody's going to space. When William Shatner went, I said, hey, I think I'm eligible. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. He took offense to everybody asking his age, but it's a valid question. I mean, he's pretty much up there, so. And how do you get on the list? I saw Michael Strahan went recently. I don't know what the qualifications are, but Michael Strahan, William Shatner, I don't know who's next. And that 
made us ask a lot of questions. Specifically, we wanted to know more about the history of space exploration, how commercial space flights impact space exploration, and what that could mean for the future. All right, let's get into the recitation. So what do we know? Well, we're seeing quite a bit of dust being kicked up from the private space companies. SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic. Everybody is taking this thing to space. (laughs) And like we said, they have been taking a lot of celebrities and the folks with the coin because going to space is not cheap. Going across the country is not cheap. Ain't no spirit flights to space. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, there's not any spirit flights anymore anyway. Right. They were just bought. Now, if I see JetBlue going to space, you're taking on too many risks. (laughs) That's what I'm going to tell anybody that has a ticket. That's just, you're taking it too far. Right. This is going to be a slingshot. They're going to put you in a slingshot and just (laughs) let it happen. But even though we're joking around, there seems to be a lot of excitement about and potential related to space exploration. Absolutely. There's so much to be discovered in space. But... Because we don't know that much, that means there's a lot of unknowns. So it kind of makes you go, I don't know, when you start thinking about just sending regular, degular, schmegular people (laughs) into space. And so what do we want to know? So I want to know kind of the history of space exploration. Who were the first folks to think about space and what questions were they asking and trying to answer? And I want to know how we got here. I feel like I was just minding my business and then everybody was going to space. Like, was this secretly happening? How did it become so popular? How did these people get on these lists? Mm -hmm. You know, was there space flight before Instagram when people couldn't post about it? (laughs) And I want to know, what do we need to be thinking about for the future? I mean, you know it's not going to just stop with those quick flights up and down. Mm -hmm. Are people going to start trying to live in space? Are people going to be having hotels up there? Is there going to be... Spotify space? <laughs> what? <laughs> if so, sign me up. Is that a part of my my premium membership, my subscription? <laughs> Let's jump into the dissection. Our guest for today's lab is Dr. Jordan Bim. I'm Dr. Jordan Bim. I'm a space historian at the University of Chicago. My research focuses on the history of space medicine and astrobiology. The best spaceship is friendship. Dr. Bim is working on a book called Anticipating the Astronaut, and it's all about the history of space medicine pre-NASA. It's coming out next year with MIT Press. And since he's a space historian, we knew he could take us back into time. Okay, So the first thing that we wanted to know was when humans were first thinking about going into space, what were they thinking about? And what did exploration look like? We've been going to space for over 60 years, but humans have been thinking about going to space for almost as long as we have written records. The earliest space sciences were visual observations of the cosmos, and that was done just with the naked eye for many years. And then starting in the 1600s, it was the telescope. The telescope was the main instrument for exploring space until the beginning of the 20th century. And telescopes are still important for space exploration today. Dr. Bim told us it wasn't until 1945, at the end of World War II, that we developed technology to actually reach space. 
So most people think that space exploration starts with NASA, which was founded in 1958. But what my research as a space historian focuses on is this missing 10 years or so where it was actually done in the military, mostly the U.S. Air Force. And the context there is the Cold War, which was a military competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was framed by the fear of nuclear annihilation and the delivery of atomic weapons. Someone said, hey, instead of putting a warhead on top of a rocket, what if we put a little capsule and a human in there, what could we do with that? Now, why would they say that? <laughs> that is not that is not my next no. <laughs> line of thinking. Instead of a warhead, what about a real head? Right. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what about a human head? <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Dr. Bim shared it's important to understand how the military shaped the history of space exploration and research. I always say history matters. You know, the past isn't really past. The past is all around us, and that counts for space as well. And it's my mission to recover those missing stories. One of those missing stories includes Werner von Braun, a former Nazi and rocket engineer who was brought over to the United States by our government as part of a secret program called Operation Paperclip. And in this program, the United States brought over 1,600 German scientists, regardless of war crimes, to work against the Soviet Union and with the United States. And so many people know that Werner von Braun and his team of Nazi rocket scientists built the rockets that took us to the moon. But what most people don't know is that doctors and psychologists came over as well, and they worked on the human who would ride inside that rocket. So the early history of the field of space medicine, which I write about in the U.S. Air Force, it's not American doctors and psychologists. It's former Luftwaffe doctors and psychologists. And they did not check their ideas about the perfectibility of certain humans at Ellis Island when they came to the United States. They wove that into knowledge about the human body in the extreme environment of outer space. So when you look at the first astronaut groups, and they are seven white male military test pilots, like all the same size, you know, the only thing that's different is like their haircut and their tie or something. It kind of is this low-key eugenics that gets in there. And we see the ripple effects of that even today. We're still trying to fight for diversity and equity of access to space because there has been this entrenched normal of the sort of white male body as space normal, which it's not. You know... This gets back to what we talked about with Angela Saini mm -hmm. in Skin Deep Lab 25. Absolutely. How our historical underpinnings, what was going on in the world at that time, affects the science that was being done. And we look back at it and say, the science doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. Well, baby, the science is biased. Okay. Absolutely. And we're still reeling from those effects today. Yeah. When you take a look back at all of the earliest, you know, bright minds that people talk about and reference Darwin, all these folks, they were racist and they had really racist ideologies that they baked into their science. And that was the science that was then canonized by the scientific community. So we accept it as fact. And there's science that's built on top of that. So even though we are hundreds of years post those thoughts and we think, oh, we're progressive, we're scientists. No, the roots, the foundation of some of these scientific principles are biased and racist. We even see this in entertainment where people are upset about Black people being in Marvel movies and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. being guardians of the galaxy. Hey, we talk about Space people? And you think they should all look like white men? That's wild to me. Right. First of all, this I is fiction. I also saw a raccoon. That, and y'all don't have no objections to that. Or a piece <laughs> of wood. I don't watch these Marvel movies, so I don't really know. <laughs> like, there was a tree. That's okay, but black folks aren't okay. Something's happening here. Spoiler alert. 
it's racism. <laughs> so when we get to moving from warhead to human head going to space, <laughs> the first question scientists wanted to answer was, could the human body actually survive in space? Can the human body survive the rigors of space travel, which include intense acceleration and deceleration, exposure to low-pressure environments inside the cabin, perhaps temperature extremes of heat and cold, things like that? The United States began to answer these questions with Project Mercury, NASA's first human spaceflight program. And it started in 1958 and had its first flight, the Mercury Redstone 3, in 1961. And those early space flights proved that for a short period of time, the human body can survive those stresses. And then as we moved into longer duration missions, like the famous Apollo missions that took us into deep space and to the moon, we learned that the transit from the Earth to the moon is possible. Remote field work on the extreme environment of the lunar surface is possible. It's possible to do science in these distant hazardous places. We've learned a lot in the past 60 years about sending humans to space, but there's still so much to learn and so many more open questions. For instance, we don't know how well people will do in longer space flights, like mm -hmm. beyond a year. So it could be a while before we're all thinking about living on Mars. Okay, so let's recap. We've talked about how the history of space exploration was rooted in the military and some problematic history in early space research. And since the Cold War, space exploration and research has been more scientific inquiry focused with the founding of NASA. So in 1969, we put a man on the moon. And in 1998, we launched the International Space Station. But recently, we've seen a boom in commercial spaceflight opportunities offered by private companies. We have seen this transformation from military to science now to what I would call experience, an experience that is for sale. The thing that's really interesting is that the answer to the question of what space is for, whether it's for military, whether it's for science, whether it's for experience, is always linked to who space is for. So it's for military, then you send soldiers. If it's for science, you send scientists, engineers, and doctors. And if it's for experience, well, then it's who has the money to pay for that and who they select as their chosen companions. That's a really interesting point. As the goals of space exploration and travel shift, who is able to travel also changes. Yeah, and while this shift to commercial space flight feels new, it's actually been going on a lot longer, right under our noses. The commercialization of space began about 20 years ago with flights to the International Space Station that were sold by a company called Space Adventures. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, they had this space program and all of a sudden they needed money. So, you know, they just tried to sell spare seats on their Soyuz capsule system. That's wild. So basically the government had a yard sale. <laughs> You could basically buy a seat on a Soyuz space capsule launching from Russia. And about 20 or so people chose that route. And it was maybe $20 million for a seat. That's crowdfunding. It's $20 million for a seat. <laughs> That's wild. So Dr. Bim is saying that when I was on AOL Instant Messenger, people were buying discount seats <laughs> to crowdfund their government. To go to space. Oh, we Like, that's wild to me. It is. It is. I can't believe this was happening. And it feels like no one knows. Nobody knew. So it wasn't like they were a company that created a whole new infrastructure. They were basically selling something they already had as a way to generate income to keep their space program going. Commercial space flight has expanded since the first Space Adventures flight to the International Space Station in 2001. 
Today, there are several companies that offer suborbital or low Earth orbit flights, and ticket prices start at $450,000 and go up from there. What we've seen with SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic is the creation of an entirely new sets of infrastructure. And the key of this is reusability. And I'm sure we've all seen those videos of those rockets coming back and landing back on Earth with their stabilizers out. That is the sort of key technological innovation that is allowing these companies to lower the price of a space launch, which before was so expensive that it was really only governments that could manage that. But now we're seeing, you know, the ascent of the billionaire class coming out of the internet boom, they have money to basically start a space program, which is crazy. But it's happening. Now, I gotta stop you. Because while the price might be getting lower, it's definitely not affordable. No. Affordable for Diddy. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say someone does have the money to go to space. Can anyone go? I saw William Shatner went up there and he's pretty old. And I would hope that there is some health criteria for space travel, not just the coins. But if there isn't, should there be? He was 90 years old. And also Wally Funk, a amazing woman pilot who was part of a very early space medicine research program, got the chance to go to space as well. And I believe she was 82 years old. So what we've seen is that people who are not these sort of eugenic specimens that we were sending to space in the 1960s can also survive at least a short duration spaceflight. But that doesn't mean that anybody can go to space. Space does actually challenge the human body in lots of ways. I'm not talking about the vacuum of space, but the environment inside the space capsule is usually a low-pressure environment. There's the problem of weightlessness or zero-G. So there are aspects of the body that do need to be checked out beforehand because you don't want someone to become sick in space or, heaven forbid, you know, die there. I think something that we often overlook is that the whole way we understand and study our bodies is with gravity. Like, as we stand and exist here now, Gravity is being enacted on us. That's a force that's enacted on us. It ensures that our blood maintains an optimum blood pressure level. Your heart is pumping to pump your blood up against the force of gravity. Your organs being situated, all of your muscles and your skeletal structure, all that stuff is operating under the pressure of gravity. But when you move to a gravityless environment or an environment that has so little gravity that it's basically negligible, uh, that changes things. And you can imagine that over time being in that environment, that will continue to change and affect how your body operates, too. My little sister, who is a very smart woman, she's an aerospace engineer. She just did a zero gravity flight. And let me tell you, she said it was not for the faint of heart. Mm. It was tough, like really tough on the body. She did really well and was able to pull off all the experiments that she needed to do. But the description, it didn't sound like something I wanted to do. Like, I don't like roller coasters. There's no way I'm surviving zero G. (laughs) You know, another consideration beyond just like, do you have the stomach for it, is the training and selection process for commercial space flights. So, you know, whenever I watch these documentaries about people going to space and NASA, they have years of training. And I know these people getting on these flights are only getting (laughs) a few days at best. So... Even though the financial barriers are high, it feels like the barrier to entry is lower because a few days of training does not equal a few years. Okay, so let's say you have the money and you're physically cleared to go on a commercial space flight. What are people doing up there? (laughs) What's on the itinerary? 
When people started going to space as tourists, they initially were going on those Russian rockets to the International Space Station, and there would only be one of them at a time. So you were basically going to be up on the space station with a bunch of professional astronauts. You're not really going to be able to choose whatever you want to do at any given moment. What you want to do has to fit in with their busy research schedules and station upkeep schedules. But last September, when we saw the Inspiration4 flight, which was an early SpaceX orbital flight and was called the first all-civilian space flight, That was sort of a turning point where they could choose whatever they wanted to do in that orbiting space capsule. Yeah, and that flight, Inspiration4, was actually privately chartered by a billionaire named Jared Isaacman. And it launched September 15th of 2021. And the purpose of this launch was to raise money for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And you know, what's really interesting is that Dr. Bim told us people on that flight chose to reference back to the previous goals of space travel and exploration. So in their training, they always appeared in military jets. They always appeared dressed in like flight suits as if they were soldiers. And then when they were up there, they made sure to tell everyone that they had a scientific research program that they were doing. I like this. So basically, so they're playing dress up. (laughs) They think this is what they should do if they go to space. Yeah, it's like when you go to Paris and you see the Eiffel Tower or in New York when you see the Empire State Building or Times Square. It just felt like that was part of their itinerary, their checklist for space (laughs) vacation. (laughs) You got to get a beret when you're in Paris. (laughs) Dr. Bim says people shouldn't be ashamed to go to space and not do science. I feel like there's some pressure to like perform or like recreate the sort of hits of the past that people are expecting from like the cultural history of space exploration. But like, I'm waiting for someone who just wants to go up and say, I'm just here to chill and look at the view, you know, (laughs) or like, I want to go up there and like write a play, do some art. In some ways, it feels like traveling to space, like the ta-da, the razzle dazzle of it is the journey. Mm -hmm. But I think you do have to consider like, okay, if we start having these longer flights, like, all right, we're up here, you know. What, what what do we do? <laughs> I know what I'm going to do. I'm definitely taking a selfie with Earth, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm waiting until, you know, I can see, like, right where my house is, and I'm going to try and point and get the right selfie angle <laughs> and smile and be like, ah, cheese, posting that on my Instagram. I'm going to try and get some TikToks floating through the capsule. I got to start thinking of captions now. Nobody can hold me down, something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it writes itself. <laughs> oh my goodness. So TT obviously has a plan. I I can't even imagine my feet off the ground, especially not that far up. Okay. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the downsides or precautions we should think about when it comes to the future of space exploration. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. We're back. 
And before we jump back into today's lab, let's talk about next week's lab. Next week, we're talking all about friendship. Now, I know you remember our last lab on friendship, where we brought Dr. Marissa G. Franco back to talk a little bit more about how to make and keep your friends as adults. But for now, let's get back to today's lab with Dr. Jordan Bim, where we're talking about the history of space exploration and commercial space flight. We've come so far from gazing up at the cosmos, but there's still so much to discover about space. There's a lot of possibility, which feels really exciting, but what do we need to watch out for? What are we going to look back on and wish we did differently? You know, those are some really important questions, especially since we know certain companies are interested in building space hotels, settling on other planets, and finding ways to make a profit off of space. I worry that there's actually a lot of negatives that we don't perceive because there is this sort of popular fascination with outer space. And a lot of people think of space as like a utopian place where we transform ourselves. I worry deeply about who is holding the keys to space. And it was bad enough when it was NASA controlling who gets to go to space. They were at least a government agency that had oversight from Congress, but now it's in the hands of private companies. And that changes the information environment drastically. Dr. Bim says we should really pay attention. You know, who's making decisions about space and what's the narrative that's being told about these commercial flights? When I see these commercial space flights that have, you know, a bunch of billionaires or millionaires and then like one or two chosen celebrities or people who have really sympathetic stories, I worry that those people are selected basically just to help them control the narrative so that you talk about your Wally Funk, but you don't talk about who is in the seat next to her, Jeff Bezos, and the climate impacts of his empire. It's like, look over here, look at this like person who really deserves to go to space and it's really cool to go into space, but don't look over here at like the whole larger thing about Elon Musk's plans for putting people on Mars and starting a city there. Like, you don't need a crystal ball to know how he's going to treat laborers in his Martian city. Just look at how workers in his Earth companies get treated. And that, to me, is a huge red flag that we're not going in the right direction here. And it's time for a course correction, to use an astronautical term. (laughs) I think this is such a great point. And we already see similar red flags happening with Meta the Facebook world where people are going to be living kind of in virtual reality when that was announced. Very rich people started buying up a lot of meta land in the metaverse, which could have ripple effects later on when other people want to engage with the metaverse. And now they have to purchase land from someone else who can determine the price of it. And when we're thinking about people with this much money and power that they are in the position to put a city on Mars. I don't think OSHA and, you know, the labor <laughs> laws here are going to apply there. And quite frankly, I feel like Martians could be about it, about it. So are there any regulations for taking up space in space? I, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, we might be... Martians want to smoke. They about yeah. that action. <laughs> yeah. We're weak, but... The Martians might have something else up their sleeve. They don't even have sleeves. Every alien movie proves that the aliens are smarter and stronger and oftentimes way bigger than us. Mm -hmm. We don't stand a chance. We don't. Good luck in Gotham City on Mars. (laughs) We're going to be underground. We're not going to get no sun. Dr. Bim says the issue of taking up space in space is something we need to be thinking about. 
that's going to be a huge issue. It already is when it comes to the topic of space junk. There's a huge amount of space around the Earth, but we're taking it up. And there's tens of thousands of things up there now, and eventually we're going to reach a limit. And there's this theoretical concept called the Kessler syndrome, where if things get so dense, one collision can start, three collisions can start, nine collisions, then it's just like exponential disaster. That was the, the conceit behind the movie Gravity. It's a real problem that we have to contend with of how to protect the environment of low Earth orbit. It is an environment. You know, the environment does not end at the top of the atmosphere. We just saw an article about space junk. Yeah, stuff is falling from the sky. <laughs> yeah, and typically when stuff falls from space, it falls into the ocean, so we don't care. But we just saw an article where it actually fell into a sheep farm. So now it's getting a little bit too close for comfort. Yeah. <laughs> we have to start thinking about this because as we start taking more opportunities to go to space and people are thinking about doing more space flights, that means more space junk. I feel like it's basically going to be like national parks where they're telling people to pick up their trash, pack up right. whatever you mm -hmm. brought in. Leave no trace in space. Right. There you go. That's the slogan. <laughs> Reach out to TT for more space slogans. I'll put it on a t-shirt. Yeah, I'll put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> The environment does not end at the top of the atmosphere, but there is no FAA for space yet that is going to regulate the creation of a space hotel. And then you run into like all of these legal issues, like which country's laws govern that space hotel? Commercial space flight companies are subject to the Federal Aviation Administration or the FAA, their regulations, because they pass through the atmosphere on the way up to space and back down to Earth. And Dr. Bim says there's been friction between space companies and the FAA and that space travel is starting to go beyond the scope of the existing laws. That can be problematic because then it just becomes sort of like a first movers game. Who has the money and the power to do something, especially if you're doing it in space? It's hard to enforce stuff like that. You know, it's hard to say, you know, you can't do that. Well, you know, stop me, <laughs> uh, you know, is what maybe Elon Musk would say to doing something on Mars. And like morally, I would be like, Yes, stop him. But practically, how do you do it? I worry, though, that it is an actor's game and that the laws will struggle to keep up. This is giving strong callbacks to colonialism. This feels mm -hmm. like the Europeans going to the Americas, you know? We got to ask some questions. Did we learn anything from that? Should we even be trying to go into space? Should we just, you know, stay in our orbit into the rivers and lakes that we're used to? I think there are so many frameworks for thinking about this. Some people might be tempted to say, since there's no one living in space currently, we can't be colonizers or repeat the violence of European colonization. But Dr. Bim says that's not true. We absolutely can. I push back forcefully on that. And the ways that we do that are, first, you can enact colonial relationships on Earth to get you to space. And you see that in different things like who are medical test subjects for space medicine? Where are spaceports located in the world? Do the locations of the spaceports benefit the people who live around them? Do they have a say in whether that spaceport gets there? And the second way that we can recreate the mistakes of the past is we can speak about space with a colonial rhetoric without being critical of it. So talking about colonization, talking about terraforming, this idea that we can just like go to a planet and like take it over and make it for us. That is an assumption that we got to back up a number of steps and think about whether or not that's the right way to think about doing that. Because a lot of times we're just skipping right ahead to like, that's what we're doing. I don't think most people are considering what Dr. Bim just said when they're saying, oh, let's live on the moon or let's live on Mars. But that is absolutely a colonial mentality of people feeling like they can leave where they are and inhabit another place just because. 
just <laughs> because they want to. Yeah. We're seeing this all over. We especially saw it with remote workers. Oh, yeah. I saw folks just packing up and saying, now I'm going to this other country because the cost of living is lower. But you're not thinking about any of the systems that are already in place, who you're displacing, how you're exploiting folks. None of that. Right. Their resources that they have available. And we're going to be talking a lot more about this in an upcoming episode on ecotourism. So we're going to step off our soapbox really quickly on that and make sure you tune into that episode. Yes. But to bring it back to space, we saw SpaceX recently building a rocket factory in South Texas Mm -hmm. and it affected the shorebirds and other wildlife in that area. And then they had an explosion Mm -hmm. and it spread debris for five miles, including onto like a wildlife refuge. Right. We've talked about this in past episodes. None of these things exist in isolation. Once you start affecting other species, the circle of life is real. It's not going to just be, oh, it's just this five miles, no big deal. The ripple effects from these types of interactions, these negative interactions with our environment, we're going to feel it. And while there's a lot of negatives to consider and things we have to watch out for, there are also a ton of positives and potentials, too. I think there's a huge potential for space to be for good if we keep it for science and exploration, not to exploit resources, not to exploit other human beings. But if we go there humbly seeking knowledge, then that can be really, really exciting. And I think probably the most exciting aspect of it is the big question. Are we alone in the universe? What is our place in the cosmos? And we are close to answering that question. You know, we have been looking at Mars for the last 40 years or so as potentially the best place in the solar system to perhaps find life. We have not found it in our many flybys and orbits and rovers on the surface, but there are new emerging sites of astrobiological interest in our solar system. And I'm talking about the icy ocean world moons of Jupiter and Saturn, places like Europa and Enceladus, where underneath their thick icy crust, there could be a vibrant ocean filled with all kinds of alien life that would just be fascinating to see and explore in an ethical way. We can't just go and take them and capture them. Can't do that. But there are ways I think that we could maybe, without being too invasive, visit them and see who's there. This is a really great point. And I think that there is a tiny bit of hope that we might be able to explore space in an ethical way. There is a United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs. So they operate similar to the United Nations that we know, where they convene a lot of space experts and they are able to make decisions about space issues and how we should be interacting with space on an international level. But also, just like the United Nations, the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, they have a very limited enforcement capacity. So if folks are in violation, there may not be much that they can do. But there is something called the National Space Council, which, you know, has been around for a long time, I think since 1989. And it's chaired by Kamala Harris, our vice president. And on September 9th, they're meeting to discuss a new rules framework for commercial space. So that's including a potential partnership between regulatory agencies and the private sector. You know, this makes me think about the most exciting recent news about the James Webb Telescope. Yes. Oh, my gosh. The images that came out from Mm, the telescope mm. were breathtaking, honestly. And I think it got a lot of people's minds moving about, wow, this universe is so vast. And when you think about how far away those images were taken from, like, it's just 
I can't think about it too much because you know me. If I start thinking about how big the universe is, I start to feel like I am being crushed by the universe. <laughs> I mean, low key. Oh, don't know. I can't think about it. It's too a much. lot out there, friend. It's, it's a, a lot, lot to feel crushed by. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I think the most exciting news for me from the James Webb telescope was about the presence of water on an exoplanet. Like they saw the potential because they saw what looked like evidence of clouds, water vapor and hazes. And that's not the only thing. There's a team that was led by the University of Montreal, and they used observations from NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, we'll call it TESS for short, (laughs) to discover an Earth-like exoplanet that could potentially support life. Hey, one exoplanet door opens. I would say another one closes, but it seems like another one opens (laughs) Another one opens. It's perpetual (laughs) doors. Door after door after door. It's like... The Russian doll of planets. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) (laughs) It's that kind of thing that is going to yield what we call a biosignature, which is not discovering life itself, but discovering a sign that we know is associated with biological processes at a planetary level. I feel like, you know, that gets us one step closer for all space kind. To be in communication, you know? Yeah. I think it's always really interesting to wonder what is possible with space. And I'm always skeptical of anybody who says that space is our destiny or certain engagements or uses of space are like preordained. Space is a series of choices and it's always open for us. Space is not a utopian transformative place. Space is a place where all of our earthly problems are reproduced or even amplified. And we got to remember that. We can't think of it as a separate realm. It's an extension of us and our values. It's really exciting. And it's a really exciting time to be aware of what's going on and be able to keep track of it and seeing how far we've come. I mean, we're talking about less than 100 years that we've been going to space. And now we have these really amazing images. We know so much more. We've done a lot. We've done a lot in a short amount of time. Yeah, I think if I were to give us a grade, we started out the first few semesters looking rough, a lot of... (laughs) military, a lot of the wrong ideas. But I think, you know, at our midterms, we kind of turned it around. Only time will tell if we will get an A moving forward. Only time will this tell. This sounds like my undergrad career. Started <laughs> off very rough. And look at you now. <laughs> getting paper. <laughs> All right, TT, you ready for one thing? Oof, I sure am. What's your one thing, Z? My one thing this week is, you know, I said I was interested in space and learning about it, but I think we should always take lessons from the past. And Mm. now this is fiction, but I think we need to just make sure we're looking at it and considering the lessons. There was a new movie called Prey that just came out and it's kind of playing on the Predator series of films. Mm. Prey is on Hulu, and I watched it, and I loved it. So that's my one thing, and I hope other folks are into it, too. If you're a science fiction person, I want to hear from you. I want to know if you like Prey or if you didn't like it. And if you didn't like it, what else do you recommend? What's your one thing, TT? My one thing this week is Serena Williams. So when this episode comes out, it'll be a few weeks post, but she announced her retirement and... I think it's so exciting because Mm -hmm. I love when super athletes get the opportunity 
to explore other sides of themselves. And I mean, she's really into fashion. Yes. She had her own fashion line. So my one thing is this week is Serena Williams and cheersing to her success as one of the greatest athletes of all time, if not the greatest athlete of all time, and seeing what else she has to give the world. I'm so excited. Okay, that's it for Lab 77. How are you feeling? Are you ready to go to space? Are you thinking we should reconsider and read some more literature on the subject? Call us at 202-567-7028 and tell us what you thought. Or you could give us an idea for a lab you think we should do this semester. That's 202-567-7028. And don't forget that there is so much more to dig into on our website. There'll be a cheat sheet for today's lab, additional links and resources in the show notes. Plus, you can sign up for our newsletter. Check it out at dopelabspodcast.com. Special thanks to today's guest expert, Dr. Jordan Bim. You can find Jordan on Twitter at Jordan B-I-M-M. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dope Labs Podcast. TT's on Twitter and Instagram at dr underscore t-s-h-o. And you can find Zakia at Z said so. Dope Labs is a Spotify original production from Mega Own Media Group. Our producers are Jenny Radlett Mast and Lydia Smith of Wave Runner Studios. Editing and sound design by Rob Smirciak. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Original music composed and produced by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiura. From Spotify, creative producer Miguel Contreras. Special thanks to Shirley Ramos, Jess Borison, Teal Kratke, and Brian Marquis. Executive producers from Mega O Media Group are us, TT Shodia and Zakia Watley. <laughs>